You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. All right. So Matthew 13, here's what we're doing. We are starting a new series this morning, and the series is entitled uh, Jesus Stories. And we are, over the next several weeks, going to look at, um, walk through the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels. But specifically, the teachings of Jesus, uh, the parable teachings. So we're going to look at, over the next ten weeks, the parables of Jesus. Now, if you went through the Gospels and said, okay, I wonder how many parables there are. How often does Jesus teach in parables? Well, the first thing you'd do is you, would, you wouldn't look at John's Gospel because there are no parables in John's Gospel. So you just got Matthew and Mark and Luke. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have over 40 parables that Jesus teaches in those three Gospels. And so all in all, 35% of what we have recorded that Jesus says in the Gospels, he says using parables. He teaches and instructs and informs us in parables. And so this morning, what we want to do is we want to look at this very first sort of parable, this sort of gateway into this, uh, this genre, this teaching, this method that Jesus employs called parables. And we're going to do it through Matthew chapter 13, because in this, the disciples are going to ask him the question, hey Jesus, why do you teach in parables? Why are you using this form? And so here it is in Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and I'm going to read through this whole parable, and then we'll go back through and we'll talk about it. So here it is, Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. It says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they didn't have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them, and other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he who will have, uh, for he will have abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, 
lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, and another sixty, and in another thirty. What's the reading of the word of the Lord? Well, it's the third sermon, Matthew 13 ends up being, it's the third sermon in Matthew's gospel that Jesus will preach, the third of five sermons, and in this, it'll be this extended series of parables. And um, so as we begin, it'd be good to ask, well, what is a parable, and why exactly is Jesus using parables to teach? Well, to begin, a parable is, um, it comes from a Greek word, it's made up of two words, one para and balo, it means to uh, to throw beside or um, to throw alongside. It, it means to compare two things, to place side by side. It's a, a story or an illustration placed alongside of a truth, and its intention is to explain one thing by the other. Some have described it this way, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So, so what Jesus does is he, he draws upon things that are common to, to everyday life, and he does it um, so he can take this which is common, this which you know, this which you understand, to teach you something about the kingdom of heaven, the tr- truth in everyday terms. And he does it so, you know, things you're familiar with, things you've touched, you've, you, you've tasted, you, you've experienced, so that they roll around in your mind. Things that are easy for you, to grasp. Parables are meant to uh, give us a, a, a perspective on a lasting life in a fading world. Uh, a glimpse into what it means to be whole in the midst of a world that's broken into pieces. That's what they're meant to do. And so the question is, well, why does Jesus teach in the parables? Well, the disciples wanted to know that. In verse 10, they said, uh, this says the disciples came to him and said, well, why do you speak in, the, in parables? And so Jesus is going to answer in verse 11, and he says, he answered them, to you it's been given, he's going to give them two reasons, to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be 
taken away. So, so in Jesus' answer, he gives those two reasons, and they are this, the purpose of revealing truth and concealing truth. To, to reveal a truth, to, to make a truth known, and to keep a truth hidden, if you will. And the truth is related to what he, what he calls the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. In Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, you'll see it's the kingdom of God. It means the same thing. So through these parables, what Jesus is doing is he's revealing, he's making known, he's bringing to light the, the coming of the kingdom of heaven into history as it's being inaugurated and will be consummated. So, so when Jesus speaks about the kingdom, when, when Jesus, so when he speaks about the kingdom, nobody stops and says, hey, Jesus, excuse me for a minute, um, what exactly do you mean by kingdom? No, nobody does that. When Jesus speaks about the kingdom, everybody knew what he was talking about. Or at least they thought they knew what he was talking about. So all the Jews of the day had an expectation of the kingdom. They were all waiting for the kingdom to come. They were waiting for the king to come. I mean, it's when there would be God's sovereign reign. It's when the righteous would be exalted. It's when the enemies were going to be destroyed. Uh, things are going to be set right. Things are going to go back to the way that they were supposed to be. Rome is going to get kicked out of this promised land. And the, and the religious leaders, they figured that they were going to have you know, this front row seat, this most prominent place in this kingdom world. Uh, you, you see it a little bit with the disciples. This um, kingdom thinking that they had. So they'd grown up with it. They'd grown up with this idea that, man, the kingdom's going to come. It's going to come with a bang. It's going to come with a splash. The, the king's going to come. He's going to bring his army. He's going to defeat Rome. This is going to be our world. And, and yet, they, they spend time with Jesus, who Jesus is, the kingdom he's ushering in. Those things begin to dawn on them. Their faith begins to grow. And, and yet you see glimpses of this old thinking creep back in. You see it when the disciples will say things like, they get Jesus alone and they, they say, well, Jesus, we, we were wondering, you know, in the kingdom to come, uh, which one of us is going to be the greatest? Because, you know, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? That's a big deal. Or when James and John come to Jesus, kind of by themselves, away from the other disciples, and they say, well, listen, we want you to do for us what we ask. I always think such an interesting way to phrase that. And I'm sure they started off somewhere, although it's not recorded, but they say something like, now look, remember, we're not the ones that got out of the boat and sank in the water, okay? But this is what we want you to do. When you sit on the throne, we, we want to sit on your right hand and your left hand in glory. That's what we want. It's kind of this old kingdom thinking, what's in it for me? You know, these, um, these things kind of hang on in our life. 
you know, what, what we think is meaningful in life. In spiritual growth, maturity in Christ, has the effect of transforming what we think is meaningful in life. I, I remember when I was young, a few years ago, and when, um, I mean, you, you know, when you're young and you, and you think about things like, like heaven, you know, and you think, uh, I, can't, I can't wait to get to heaven. I'm going to be able to fly, you know? It's going to be so awesome. I'm going to be able to fly. At least I think I, at least I, think I will be. I mean, if I'm good enough, maybe I'll be able to fly, yeah. Or I'm going to live in a mansion. I mean, I'm, I'm going to have a mansion in heaven. I mean, I wonder how big it's going to be. I wonder how big my mansion's going to be. You know, or, or maybe you think, you know, heaven will be, it'll probably be cool for a few months, but I wonder if I'm going to get bored in heaven. I mean, what else? I mean, what is there going to, what are we going to do in heaven? I mean, you, you think those kinds of things because we're still wrapped up. We're still tethered to. We still are anchored to these, um, these things that we think are meaningful. Growth and maturity as we become more like Christ, what is meaningful begins to change. And we begin to think more of things like, not what am I going to get, but whose will I be? And who will be with us forever? So there's this kingdom expectation. And that it was coming with a bang, and it was going to come with this force, and a powerful leader, and an unstoppable army, so that we can live in peace with those around us, and we know that peace with those around us come because we have a powerful military force who wipes out our enemies. That's what they thought. That's how peace happens, because we win a war. And Jesus says, no, listen, peace with your enemies is not your biggest problem. Peace with God, that's your biggest problem. And it's not your enemies that need to be conquered, it's your heart that needs to be conquered. And in fact, I'm not just conquering your heart, I'm after your enemies' hearts too, and I'm after it with the gospel. And they were blind to it, and they didn't want to hear it. And so the mystery, the secret of the kingdom is Jesus revealing what was always there in the Old Testament. It's, it's some, a mystery, a secret. It's something previously hidden that's now being revealed. It's not that it wasn't there. It was hidden in plain sight all along. You can go back through the Old Testament and read all that Jesus does. Everything about His ministry is all through the Old Testament. It just didn't make sense. It just couldn't be understood until Jesus is there and, and brings it to light and, and brings it to plain sight. And so while the Messiah, He is, listen, Jesus will come with a sword of justice. He will come to execute righteousness. He will come to right all wrongs. He will come to put down all rebellion. He will come to pour out the Father's wrath against all sin. He will come to reclaim and to restore all all that has been lost, He will do all of that. 
But He first came to save. To provide salvation. Because the reality is nobody can survive justice. Nobody can stand on the day of righteousness. No one can pay the penalty due their sin. So Jesus first has to come. He first comes to be sin. He first comes to be a suffering servant. He first comes to enter humanity and to substitute Himself and to receive the judgment Himself. And then to come back as the judge to execute judgment. So for everybody that that by faith trusts in Jesus for life, for For salvation. Jesus was judged on their behalf. uh, Their judgment's complete. You receive His righteousness. They've been ransomed. You belong to a king. But for everybody that rejects Jesus, when He comes back as judge, He will be your judge, not your Savior. And nobody survives that. So the mystery, so that's being revealed. It was always there. Now it's being brought to light. The kingdom is here. And it's here in Jesus. It had come and it is coming. Not a crash, not with a sword, but with a seed. Not not from the outside with a a sword to impose a political rule, but but it's going to come implanted on the inside by the Word of God to transform lives. It wasn't going to come about by the death of an enemy. It was going to come about by the death of a Savior. Not by conquering nations with fear and force, but by conquering hearts and overwhelming them with love and grace. And so that's the the secret. Now back to the revealing and the concealing. How the parables work on the hearer. So so the truth is presented alongside an illustration that challenges your faith. It it causes you discomfort. It, 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 It takes something that you know, something you're familiar with, and then it opens a window into heaven, and so you, you look at it and you say, well, wait a minute, I have never seen anything like that before. I've never seen it that way before. So it shines light on the truth, and it turns the light on the truth, the truth we don't naturally see because we live in a world full of shadows. Listen, parables aren't riddles. They're not esoteric sayings for philosophy majors. It's truth presented simply. But it is concealed to those whose hearts are hardened. And I'll tell you why. So in, in John chapter 8, this is what Jesus will say to the religious leaders. Listen to this. I can't believe he says this, but th- th- listen to this. You, you'll find this to be true as you hear Jesus' words. He says this. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. In other words, what 
This parable tells us, and what he says in John chapter 8, is that it is the truth itself that prompts, that causes, that elicits unbelief. Because their minds are, are so corrupt, or they're so shaped by a perspective of the world that is against God, re rebelling against God, that, that any truth as it comes is repulsive. And it's because the truth is told that some people don't believe. Don Carson says it this way, D.A. Carson, he says, there are some truths, there are some times when the truth itself damns, the, the truth itself hardens, the truth itself blinds, the truth itself makes ears deaf because there is already this guilty, God-forsaking, unbelieving, self-focused hatred of all things other than me first. Isn't that right? So it conceals the truth. But it also reveals. For the one who has, more will be given. What's the more? What's the thing they have that more will be given? Did you, have you figured it out? It's faith. Those who trust Jesus can hear His truth and by grace are given understanding of that truth. See, that's what the parable of the soils is going to illustrate. This is the longest introduction you've ever heard. Lo longer than the one two weeks ago, which was long. But in, in fact, in Mark's gospel, what Mark will add about this is that if you don't understand the parable of the soils, you don't understand any of the other parables. Mark 4.13. So the parable of the soils is like this. It's like, here's this warning. Here's this mirror to look at. So look into the mirror of the parable of the soils and see, okay, what kind of hearer are you? Examine yourself. What, what are you? How, do you? how do you see yourself in the parable of the soils? This is what Jesus is doing. So what kind of soil are you? And we find out that the soil, in verse 19, is your heart. And the seed is the Word of God. So look with me. here. He's going to give us four soils, and look at what he says. So in verse 3, and he told them many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sow. And so in verse 4, and, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Then, in verse 19, we have the interpretation. Jesus interprets this parable. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in the heart. That is what was sown along the path. The path. You might say it this way. You, you want to be aware of listening or hearing with a hard heart. Maybe you think about it this way. It is this sort of intellectual engagement only with the things of Jesus, with the things of Christianity, with, with the things that are God's Word. That I'm only intellectually going to engage. That the claims of Christianity, they are a theory to be proven or disproven. That, that this sits on the, on the top 
But I would say it this way, if it only sits on the top, if it only is ever intellectual, you will never know the power of the claims. See, you might demand to see the power of the seed without ever letting the seed take root. You can look at the seed, you can examine it, you can slice it open and dissect it, and say, I demand to see the power of the seed before I let the seed take root. But do you know what that's called? That's unbelief. The seed will not yield its power without taking root. And so you can leave it external, you can leave it out there and examine it all day long, but without faith, you will never know the power. Without taking it in, you will never know what it truly is. And this is not to say, listen, Christianity, the claims of Jesus, God's Word can survive scrutiny. It can survive your investigation of it. And, and, and by all means, your questions... Press in on them. That, that is not what I'm saying. But I am saying at the end of the day, you cannot come to the place of proving Christianity and knowing its power without a step of faith. You won't know the power without faith. It will not yield to you its power without faith. And therefore, take no root in your heart. The hardness of heart will not let you take it in. So for you, I'd say the invitation this morning. The invitation this morning for you is to take a thrilling risk to be overwhelmed by an all-powerful, all-loving, all-gracious God. To, to take a thrilling risk that there may be a greater truth than your own truth. A truth that has the power to overwhelm you and transform you and heal you and enthrall you and change you. But you won't know it without faith. To seek to engage Christianity without faith is the hardness of a path. It will never take root. You will never know its power. Well, the second soil, if you'll look in verse 5, says this, the other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. And then he gives the interpretation over in verse 20. It says, And as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word, and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, Immediately, he falls away. He or she falls away. So it's rocky soil. It's, it's shallow. It's, it's emotional. 
It's received with joy. It, it springs up. It's excited. It feels like their eyes have been opened. And they bought a t-shirt at camp. And nothing wrong with camp t-shirts. I got a lot of them. But the description, did you notice this? There is no depth. See, the seed takes no root in their heart. I mean, it's genuine euphoria, but nothing has happened at the heart level. So the sun comes out, it gets hot. You might say, hey, Christ has changed my life. I'm excited about him. But trouble comes, or suffering comes, or you know, you, important things in your life get threatened. This isn't fun anymore. And you say, well, man, what's the use of Christianity? I mean, I, I'm not getting anything out of this anymore. And instead of entering into Christ's kingdom, what you realize is you're trying to bring Christ into your kingdom. You were... You were wanting someone to bless you, not save you. You, you, were, you were wanting someone to, to fix a few problems you have. You weren't looking for salvation. And so long as there's a perception of having your needs met, then there's joy. But when things heat up, what you really worship got burned up. Incidentally, you know what that's called? It's idolatry. See, the problem there with the second soul is, is not knowing your real need. And that your real need is heart change. Not just a change of circumstance. That, that your real problem is sin. Your, your problem is not your circumstances. Your problem is down deep inside of you. It's sin. You can't change that. You're desperate to be changed. You, you can't fix yourself. You're desperate to be changed healed you need a savior because you've come under the hearing of God's word and you've been laid bare and you cry out I, I am nothing and I need everything And you haven't come to that place. Unless the rocky soil. And there's the thorny soil. Look at what he says in verse 7. Other seeds fell among thorns. But the thorns grew up and choked them. And then you find the interpretation in verse 22. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. I think this is probably the saddest of all the three groups. You might call this a, a divided heart, a distracted heart. I mean, so the first two groups, I mean, it's easy to see the shortcoming in the first two groups, right? I mean... They hear the word, but it never really gets down into the heart. It never really takes root in the heart. But this one, this takes root. It's not that it doesn't take root. 
It's just that there are other things that have taken root. It's not that the Word of Christ hasn't come and taken root. It's not that there's not a desire for Christ. It's not that you don't have an affection for Christ. It's just you have all these other competing affections. And so, you desire Christ. But that is choked out by all the other things that you are hanging on to in this world. Are the things that are hanging on to you. You may have a true desire to be devoted to Christ, but find yourself completely choked out. Maybe real desire, but you don't have any power. You don't know any healing. You don't know any change. You haven't seen any fruit. And it is, that is a miserable place to be. Full of anxiety. I think there are believers all over our churches that live right there. Wonder, week to week, am I even, am I even saved? I don't even know if I'm even saved. I desire Christ. I don't know any of the power. I don't know any of the change. I, my life is so tethered to this world. There are so many things taking root in my heart. And your heart is completely divided. That's miserable. Well, then there's the good soil. Seeds taken root. You know the gardener. The work of the gardener. There's fruit. Divine yield of fruit. There's pruning. There's faith. You know what it is to be cared for and nourished and enriched. And the strength of the word takes root in your heart. And as you read God's word, the word implanted rises up and grows and, and it's not full understanding, but it's, it's a growing faith. So what do you do with all this? Hmm? You know, there's a temptation, I think, to read this. And we would walk out of here and think, you know, it's going to be better soil. It's got to be better soil. Just, you know, drive to Lowe's and get some of that better soil stuff they sell in a bag and some Roundup and be better soil. Come on, you can do it, church. Go be better soil. It's, it's our natural tendency to do that. Can I let you in on a little secret, though? It's a great idea. You can't do it. You have no power to do that. The soil is prepared by the gardener. It's a hymn. Love so amazing, so, di so divine. 
demands my soul, my life, my all. If you're a parent, you know a little bit of that. You know when your kid obeys you. You know, because they desire to, they want to, and when they have to, begrudgingly, you know distinctly the difference, right? And until the message of all that Jesus has done for you and is doing in you gets into your heart and takes root, until you see Jesus high and lifted up and the gospel takes root in you, that He has done what you can never do for yourself. When that penetrates the hardness of your heart and it takes root, until it does, you're not able to say, my love so amazing and so divine. You'd be miserable and anxious until. Because you're not, don't have the ability to change those kinds of things. The nature of who you are. So what do we do about it? I would say this. The answer to what we do is that we go to the gardener. That we go to the gardener and we say, Gardener, God, you know I have thorns in my life. Would you take them out? You, you know the rockiness of the soil of my heart. Would you please pull them out? And you go back to the Word and you hear the Word and you listen to it, and you reflect upon it. So will you tend my soil? Will you cultivate the soil of my heart? Will you change my heart? Will you care for the thorns and take the rocks away? And you go to the gardener and have him pull the thorns and remove the rocks. And you know what he's going to say? Do you know what he is going to say? Absolutely. I will have been waiting on you. I took the thorns on my brow. I already did that. And the rock, I was buried under one. I already did that. I've taken those things. I'm here for you. I love you. Receive my word. Hear my grace. Let it take root. Look to the cross. And be changed. Allow your heart to be cultivated by the gardener. As the word takes root deep in your life. So if you would, would you bow with me? Let us pray. Father, I, I pray that you'd help us this morning. The temptation we would have would be to walk out of here and in our strength
resolve to say, I want to be better soil.